Thank you. Before we continue, I uh, just got a note here. A little boy named Jackson Martinez, two years old. Uh, his parents, Juan and Judy, work at the hospital um, with Jana Wyrick. And Jason has been diagnosed with some sort of tumor or cancer this last week. Um, he will have bone marrow biopsies and start chemo this week, two years old. So we want to be remembering Jackson Martinez and his mom and dad, Juan and Judy. So let's stop and have a prayer for them uh, before we go any further. Lord, you are the one who said, Let the little children come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And Father, we want to bring before you this little two-year-old baby boy. And we just ask, Lord, that your hand would be upon his life that you would touch him, his body physically, that you would bring a healing and wholeness to him as he struggles for his very life. We pray for Juan and Judy, his parents. And Father, I pray that you would be very close to them, drawing them closer to you, filling them with your presence and with the hope that comes from the promises that we find in Christ Jesus. So we just plead the blood of Christ over them, Lord. Pray that you would surround them with your grace and with your heavenly mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we uh, look around at the state of the world, uh, crises in different parts of the world, um, Ukraine, all that's going on in the Middle East right now, things that are happening in Africa and other parts of the world that we never get to hear about, and we see what's going on within our own country um, surrounding us, the things that happen and take place that um, affect us more directly. Sometimes we as Christians, we wonder what are we supposed to do and how are we supposed to respond? And it, um, you know, if you just looked at the news all the time and just read the reports and all of that because all they do is report the, the negative stuff. They don't tell you all the really positive things that God is doing and blessing people and miracles that are being performed. Um, it could be a, a bit intimidating and frightening. Um, and for Christians, we sometimes get confused in knowing where we're supposed to be. Well, there was a man by the name of Augustine, or some people call him Augustine, I call him Augustine because I'm from South Texas. <laughs> anyway, uh, Augustine, he was a bishop of a, a pretty major city in North Africa. Um, it was Hippo Regius is the name of the town. So they usually call him Augustine of Hippo. And it was up close to uh, modern-day Tunisia. So it's right there on the Mediterranean. It was a Roman province. And Augustine was the bishop. And um, he died about 430, 430 A.D. 20 years before, in 410, the Visigoths, a Germanic tribe, had come down and sacked Rome. Can you imagine that? Attacked the capital of the Roman Empire, been there for almost a thousand years, ruler of all of Europe and uh, Mediterranean and parts of Asia, just a just tremendously powerful, wealthy, militaristic empire that had been there, and they thought Rome would last forever. In 410, 
this barbaric Germanic tribe came down and defeated all the legions of Rome and attacked and sacked Rome itself. Well, Rome continued, and then they began asking questions. And what they said was, it's because we've turned to God. Uh, the pagans rose up and said, it's because um, we became Christians and we were weak. And so what we need to do is we need to go back to paganism. It's kind of like what you're hearing nowadays, you know. New Age movement, go back to the... There's nothing new about the New Age movement. It's just going back to the old dead gods that weren't effective ever before and aren't effective now. And so it, it offers a false hope to people. And it's a sign of the times that people are desperate and they're searching for answers. And even though the church has been there offering the answer all these years, they reject that and so they have to look somewhere else. Those were the days in which Augustine lived. And um, he actually wrote a, a book um, called The City of God. And it was, a, um, it was the first philosophy of history that was ever written. And for him, he, he's comparing Rome, the pagan, corrupt, decadent city, with the city of God. And that's the basis of this book. And it's a justification for turning to Christianity and the hope that we find in Christ. Twenty years later, Augustine is there in Hippo, and as he is dying, another group of Germanic guys coming out of, came over to North Africa, and they were at the gates getting ready to, to destroy Hippo. These were the Vandals. And tell you a little bit about the Vandals. Uh, it's, they're the group that gave us the word vandalism. So those were, the, those were those guys. And they were the ones that were getting ready to destroy his city. So Augustine... He had the privilege and the challenge to trust God and live faithfully at such a time of turmoil, breakdown, and distress, and to articulate, put in words, a vision of the kingdom of God that could form a pathway to cross the dark ages between the collapse of Rome in the West and centuries later the rise of Christendom in Europe. So. During the collapse of Rome, from the fall of Rome to the rise of what we would call Christendom, uh, Christian states again, is this time period of the Dark Ages. And the things that he wrote helped provide a bridge during those Dark Ages, a bridge of hope and promise and a future. And so his goal was to help people take this as a challenge, Christian church to rise up, to trust God, and live faithfully. Now when those kinds of times happen to people and we seem to be in the midst of something uh, beginning of those kinds of things taking along, then there's no spectators. It's not a time to sit on the fence or to sit around and do nothing. It's a time for Christians to stand up and be counted. It's a time to become active in our prayers and consistent in our living and faithful in our witness. So it's faithfulness and orthodoxy. The Apostle Paul um, lived in a time like that as well. Um, and so he writes to Timothy, his young protege, and he tells Timothy to watch his life and his doctrine closely. Be careful of your life and your teaching. The big words are faithfulness and orthodoxy. That's trust God and live faithfully. That's what he's saying.
So what happens is that we become, it becomes a time of transition. So these were transition times, and these were times of, of threat. As David was sharing from Lamentations this morning, this was a time of tremendous transition. They were on the threshold of a whole new relationship with God, a whole new dimension, because everything that they had hoped for, uh, he says in Lamentations, everything that we had hoped to receive from God is gone. They had no temple anymore. The sacrifices weren't being offered anymore. The high priesthood did not exist at that time. They had no freedom. They had no land. They were in a foreign country. Things were in a tremendous transition that threatened their very existence as a separate people. And so they were on this gateway, this threshold, and they didn't know what the future held for them. And they didn't know if God had forsaken them or not because of the greatness of their sin. They finally understood the consequences of their actions because they were living them out. And so many thought, um, why pray? There's no hope for God for us anymore because we have so offended Him that He is now angry beyond remedy. And that shows how little they truly knew God. Because it's when we're at our lowest, when we realize there is nothing more we can do, that we begin to earnestly and truly turn to God. And Jesus has made us the promise, if you seek for me with all of your heart, you will find, because God is looking for us. It's the grace of God. Uh, these people didn't deserve it. Neither do we. They hadn't earned it. Neither have we. It's just simply and purely God's grace and His mercy. And so this became um, a pretty strong thing. So we're looking now about the 6th century B.C. Not since the captivity of Egypt had the Jews been strangers in a strange land. So from the time they came out of Egypt till the time they went to Babylon, they had had their own land. And so for the first time in hundreds of years, they found themselves once again strangers in a strange land. Um, and so you could look at that as an ending, or you could look at it as a beginning. You could look at it as pessimists, uh, like Job's wife, things are so miserable and you're so miserable, might as well curse God and die. Well, that's the counsel of despair, isn't it? And hopelessness. That's the kind of, of response people who don't have a God give. So the other opportunity, the other way of looking at it as an opportunity, now is the time for us to really express, live out the faith that we have. It doesn't take a lot of faith uh, when everything is provided for you and every, you know where it is and you're, you're at peace and secure and everything's, and you're comfortable and uh, you don't have to have a lot of faith to live that way. But take away all those props, like what happened to Jerusalem. All the props gone away and it's just you and God and that's it. That's when we begin to know, really know, who God is. So that's the background for books like 
uh, Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah and Lamentations. And later on when they come back, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and on and on down through Malachi. So that's the context in which these men were living in which they were writing. So Ezekiel, who was in captivity, part of the, one of the groups that were taken away into captivity, there were three deportations, and Ezekiel was involved in one of them. In chapter 30, God gave this gracious offer in verse 15. Sorry, 3315. Uh, looked at the wrong book. Uh, sorry. We're looking at Ezekiel 33 verses 10 and 11. That's better. <laughs> Isaiah 33, 30 is what's coming next, so you can get ready for it. But we're looking at Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 10 and 11. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you are saying. So this is how they viewed themselves. Our offenses and our sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? It's a good question, isn't it? How then can we live? Our offenses and sins weigh us down. We're wasting away. Say to them, this is God's word to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And so God is speaking to them, and they are understanding that what they are experiencing, as David was reminding us uh, earlier, was a judgment from God. These are God's people who have rebelled against their God and God's judgment is upon them. He had told them. He had warned them. He had sent prophets. They know from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, if you sin, you will die. That's it. It was very plain. They knew the consequences before they ever sinned. And they did it anyway. They're like us. And so God says, I don't take pleasure in that. It doesn't have to be this way. And I think that's one of the things that cut deepest is that these people were experiencing the death and destruction that was all around them. They were experiencing the pain and the suffering that was all around them. And they, they were experiencing themselves, the separation, the loss, everything, the ridicule, the taunts of their enemies. And in their heart, they knew we have brought this on ourselves, and it didn't have to be this way. As a nation, today, we can look around at the things that are happening in our country, and they are not happening without cause. And the point of all this is, this is all a result of what we ourselves are doing. And if we do not change, the consequences are not going to change either. They're going to they're get worse. And God is saying to us, like he's saying to the people of Israel long ago, I don't take pleasure in that. And the opportunity for salvation and deliverance and forgiveness is very real. So turn. Turn from your evil ways 
Why will you die, O USA? That's where we are. In Psalm 11, he asks another good question. Ezekiel's asking people of his day, if situations are like they are, how shall we then live? And it's a good question. In days like ours, what are we supposed to do? How are we going to live because we're dealing with sins on a national level, on a corporate scale? And here we are just individuals, right? But nations are made up of people, individuals. Um, corporations are made up of individuals. We're looking at a group history here. And this is kind of the, the types of things that Russ will be dealing with all along. Is because it's more than just my relationship with God as an individual. That's where it begins, with me as an individual, with you as an individual. We all come to God individually. But collectively, we have a witness, a testimony, a personality as a church, as a family, uh, as a community, as a state, as a nation. And that testimony and that witness, uh, other people, other nations respond to that. Other communities, other states, other families, other churches. Um, we all have our own witness and personality, our own strengths and weaknesses. And so he's dealing with us on a corporate level here. In Psalm 11, David is writing, and he starts off, In the Lord I take refuge. So where are you going to go for your security, our hope, our future? Where are we going to go for comfort, for security, for peace? Where are we going to go? David says, I, in the Lord, I take refuge. He is my fortress. He is my strength. And he's going to go and he's going to say in verse 3, this is the question. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we are living in a day in our country when the moral and spiritual foundations of our country are being threatened and destroyed. They're being attacked for sure. It's been going on for a while. Um, it's going to increase. The foundations, the moral fiber of this country is under attack. So that's why we're facing some of the social evils that we're facing today. So it's not a thing that's, that's based on, on race. It's not a thing that's based on nationality. It's not a thing that's based on who you know or, how, or, or economy or any of those things. It's a kind of thing that's based on your relationship with God. And if we try to address the problems economically or socially or psychologically or emotionally or any other way, militarily, uh, it's not going to be effective. It's like putting a Band-Aid when a person's got a broken leg, compound fracture, bones sticking out everywhere. Well, I got some mercuricomb and a Band-Aid. That'll fix it. And that's where we're putting our hope. And that's not going to help. It's going to do no good at all. So when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And David answers that. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. 
He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. So when we look at the problems going on and the temptation to despair and fear comes upon us, we need to remember that God is a sovereign God and he is still on the throne. And the things that we face are not in any way, shape, or form a threat to him in any way at all. So we need to remember whose we are and who is in control. Our hope is in him. David had it right. In the Lord I take refuge. Now this doesn't mean that um, David said, well, I'm going to trust God. But oftentimes that's what we do in the church, isn't it? To trust God means to look to Him and live faithfully. That's what it means. Consistency in our relationship with Him and in our daily walk, in our dealings with one another, in the way that we conduct business, in the way that we go about the things that we do everyday life. That's what it means. That's having God as our refuge. It's not giving way to fear, but it's looking to the Lord for hope. It's praying um, specifically and with assurance that when we pray, God hears and answers. So the Lord is on the throne. He is in his holy temple and all the earth is before him. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. Isaiah chapter 30. Here we go. Verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the one that's on his throne, the Holy One of Israel, the one that Isaiah himself had seen, and out of that vision... Partly comes this prophecy. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance, that's the word returning. The word that Ezekiel used. In returning or repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. That's what we should be doing. Returning, repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and and trust is your strength. And what it matters here is, is who do you trust? That's the whole key. If we trust in the government, we're in trouble. If we trust in self, we're in trouble. So the important thing here is who are you resting in and who are you trusting And Isaiah says it's the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Now the destruction comes because the rest of that verse says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. God says, therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride on swift horses. And God says, therefore, 
your pursuers will be swift. Uh, it's the kind of thing, you know, you can run but you can't hide kind of deal. And so he says all of this destruction is coming because they refused the quietness and the trust. If you reject faith, if you reject hope and trust in God, what you're left with is judgment. Now later on in Isaiah chapter 33, he's going to answer the question that David asked in Psalm 11. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Isaiah chapter 33 gives the answer. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times. We're back to David. In the Lord, I take refuge. He will be the surest foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. How can we then live? Uh, The key is the fear of the Lord. So when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? We trust in God, we draw close to Him, we live consistently and faithfully, um, knowing and believing and trusting Him. So in Lamentations, the verses that we started with this morning, as they are going through that judgment, that crisis, the grace of God is with them. He starts off in verse 18. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction, my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. When Jeremiah wrote that, He was sitting in the rubble of a destroyed Jerusalem. The temple was in ruins. Not one stone was left on top of another at Jerusalem. The Babylonians had pulled them all down and destroyed them. The city was burning. They had been under siege for a year and a half. There was disease. There were rotting corpses and and bodies around them. There were dead people. Uh, It was a horrible place. If you get your worst concept of hell, Jeremiah was in it. And this is what he writes. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. He's sitting in that rubble heap, and he's saying, God is merciful and gracious and compassion. How can he do that? Because he knew God. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. What does it mean to wait on God? 
to trust God and live faithfully. That's what it means. To wait on God, trust God, and live faithfully. Paul to Timothy, watch your life and your teaching carefully. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him. To the one who seeks Him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Wait upon God, trust Him, and live faithfully. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that in the sinking sands that are all around us, you are the firm foundation. Thank you, Lord, that you are the foundation for our times. And within you, we find a rich store of salvation and wisdom and hope. We pray, Father, that as we learn to fear you, to trust you, to walk with you, and to live faithfully before you, that those things will be ours. We thank you for the hope that we have. We thank you for the coming of Jesus Christ that makes that hope a reality because it's in his presence that we find peace. So Lord, we ask that you would draw us close to you, open our eyes, be the giver of dreams and the giver of visions, the one who imparts hope and a future. Thank you, Lord, for the comfort the consolation that ministers to us like Jeremiah, even in the midst of a broken, defeated people. Yet your word is true and strong and faithful. So as a people of God, Lord, teach us to trust you, teach us to live faithfully, and to walk in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.